from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. The Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life, or have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Carol Brooks a Baha'i from the Denver area. She grew up in Buffalo, New York, then moved to New Jersey, and finally settled in the Denver metropolitan area in her teenage years. It was while she was in middle school in Denver that she and her mother discovered the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Carol where she grew up, and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in uh, actually multiple places. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess I'll just tell you about them. I... uh, was born in Cleveland, Ohio, but we, we left Cleveland when I was three, you know, so I don't remember that much about it. I do re- recall my mother kind of putting me in this, like a baby bassinet thing, under the window where I could kind of look out and see the branches of the trees oh, that were where we lived. It was very green, but mm-hmm. I don't remember much detail about Cleveland. It was kind of a time when... Uh, my mom and my my dad were living at her father's place when they got started out. You know, he was back from the Navy. This was a WW2. He married her after he came back. They just had to get a start somehow, and my grandfather allowed them to stay there. So we were in Cleveland, I'm going to say, for probably, oh, about three years. My mother, I believe, while we were in Cleveland, she put my father through Case Institute of Technology at Western Reserve. He was coming out of the Navy, so he took advantage and, and took the educational program, and which was great because it got him a job for our next move, but it physically exhausted my mother. So when you said she put him through, what do mm-hmm. you mean? She was kind of caring for us and staying with her dad because mm-hmm. her mom had passed away, uh, but going out and, and doing jobs, you know, to ensure that we had some money to keep us going. Uh, and I think probably what he did was he probably took advantage of, of one of the federal programs for veterans. Right. That, but then we needed money. And there were two of us, Beverly, who was my older sister, and then myself. Uh, Linda and Pam weren't born until we moved to Buffalo. So once she got him through college... That got him a job, actually, with Bell Helicopter, okay. which was in New York. So we, we, uh, we moved to Buffalo, New York, and that was, that was a good thing, because back in those days, you know, uh, oh, gosh, late 40s, early 50s, you didn't really have, a lot of African Americans weren't working in, in professional positions, you know, like engineering. And he took a he got a job with Bell Helicopter in electrical engineering, so he went into kind of the technical side of things. 
And so we were able to move and actually uh, get a place to be in, in Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, we stayed in for a while. I, was, I went to uh, elementary school mm-hmm. in Buffalo. I think it was School 53. <laughs> Buffalo had a big school system. And we lived in these row houses that were down the street from the ballpark. So if they, you know, they hit a ball out of the park, you could go and get it, and then you had a souvenir. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of neat. <laughs> and that was kind of a, it was an interesting place. I think when we were in Cleveland, I, I was pretty small, so I wouldn't have remembered. Mm-hmm. But we weren't in a real integrated situation, because I recall my mother making a comment uh, about a conversation she'd had with her mother when she woke up and there was a man who was white that was in the house, and she had asked her mother, who was that white man? So I don't think the, the Cleveland situation was, was well integrated. Right. But when we moved to Buffalo, New York, we had, oh, Puerto Ricans and, and Africans and Italians and, and Jewish people. It was, it was a pretty interesting place to live. Mm-hmm. And this was and in the, the 60s? Gosh, this would have been late fifties now, mm-hmm. late fifties. So you because I was I was born forty nine, so we probably mm-hmm. left Cleveland fifty three ish, fifty four ish, and so we were in Buffalo, New York through the fifties. So there wasn't anything like the segregated South that you experienced in it Buffalo. Was, uh, it was different from that. It had its own kind of problems. It was good in that we got, a, I thought we got a great exposure to various groups in Buffalo. But you had kids who would kind of run around and organize themselves into little gangs. Nothing like the scale that you have today. A lot of violence, serious violence and drugs connected with the gangs today. In Buffalo, you know, these were kids that would kind of run in packs and they would get into fights and stuff. And I remember one girl who. She wanted to fight me, you know? oh my. and I gradually kind of befriended her by just talking with her and, and listening to her, and one day she told me, she said, you know, since that first day when I was going to fight you, I, I haven't found any devil in you. <laughs> so we kind of got to be friends after that. It was an interesting situation, and there was prejudice. My mom had hired a babysitter to watch Bev and I, while my dad was at work, and, and she went out and did work for the IRS back then. This was, was an older light, white lady. Periodically, something would be going down in the neighborhood, and Bev and I would be talking about it, kind of amongst ourselves. And the babysitter would comment, and then she would say, well, what color were they? We'd always get that comment from her, and I couldn't understand, why did she always say that? And then I, I mentioned to my mother, and my mother was kind of upset. <laughs> So I don't know how long we kept that babysitter, but (laughs) so it was a situation where you had a lot of different kinds of people just all in there together. It was very, very interesting, and the food was great, great Italian food. Mm -hmm. Kind of interesting, my mom and my dad were an odd twosome. You know, they were interesting to look at, first of all, because, you know, she was small. She was about Mm 4'11", and he was about 6'1". So it was kind of an interesting pair. But my mom had come from an Episcopalian background. Uh, she prayed a lot, you know, and she would tuck us into bed at night and, and, and have a prayer with us. And my dad, his father, apparently he had some issues with his father, and I never really got to know my dad's father. 
I think his dad had some sort of a church or an organization in his basement. Hmm. And my father looked upon it as, you know, very weird, with weird practices, and didn't get along with his dad very much, and so it kind of made a bad impression mm-hmm. on my father in terms of faith, right. you know, and, and religion. So the, the two of them in Buffalo, they kind of needed something, I think, that they could agree on, and they wanted some sort of moral education for us. I think they just kind of came to an agreement that the Unitarian thing worked the best for them. Interesting. You know, my dad was happy with it because it had lots of intellectual discussion. My mom was happy because it was a place to take us where we could get some moral education, although maybe it wouldn't have been her first choice. But the thing about the, the Unitarian group was that they had this international fellowship, and they were bringing together all these people from all these different backgrounds, religions and countries and all sorts of things. And I really think that that had a great influence, you know, on where we went Hmm. from there with our family. My dad, while we were in Buffalo, he got involved with the International Folk Dancing Group, too. And my mother was real supportive of this kind of a hobby for him that, sort of turned into a passion and then an addiction. (laughs) And she would sew the clothes that he needed for his costumes. She'd put, you know, the the rickrack on the shirts and stuff and fix the sashes and put things on the pants so that he could dress for whatever they were going to do, you know, in terms of the evening and and whatever the, the performance was. That was kind of good for us, too, because we got to go, you know, and so we, we heard all this music and got to see the dances, and we'd run around and, and, and just talk to people. And, and uh, you know, by the time we, we left Buffalo later, when I was about end of elementary school, my dad had collected probably about a wall of albums of different countries. So, you know, if you could take a, a floor-to-ceiling bookcase and just fill it with records. He had records, you know, dance music from Serbia, Israel, Greece, Sicily, Puerto Rico, just, you know, everywhere that you can think of. Mm -hmm. And it was just really quite the passion for him. It was interesting because he was very, very scientific, you know. I mean, he, he, he loved his craft, and he was very logical. He enjoyed arguing with people with the downfall, you know. But he, he also loved music and dancing, and my mother also loved music. And she would just sing like a bird when she was washing dishes and doing housework. And so we had that influence very early in our lives in in Buffalo, while I was still in primary school, of people from all around the world and and listening to uh, music from all these different cultures. Sadly, the the folk dancing thing kind of became the downfall of the marriage for my mom and my dad. She seemed very supportive, though. She was very supportive of it, and I think she um, actually enjoyed going to a large degree, taking us kids along and engaging in the dances, but it kind of got to a point, I think, where he stopped dancing with her and kind of dancing with all the other ladies. And I, I don't know, I'm just trying to remember exactly what happened 
in terms of the job situation, I know that uh, she worked and helped helped him kind of move up through the ranks in the helicopter. But at some point, and I don't know whether it was layoffs or what it was, but we were to move to uh, Burlington, New Jersey. No, Carol, I'm a little confused. You said your mother helped him move up the ranks? What did you Yeah, mean? she she did the, the extra jobs, keeping the house clean, taking care of us, okay. and basically allowed him, after getting out of school, to take on this job mm-hmm. at Bell Helicopter and to just have everything done for him, basically. I yeah, I hear what you're saying. And it allowed him to just really, really focus on his career and then to also develop a strong passion for music and dancing in his spare time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was good for us economically, mm-hmm. I think. But, uh, you know, in the long run, it, it kind of came back to bite us. I see. So then we, we moved to Burlington, New Jersey. That was a little town across the river from Philadelphia. You know, and the interesting, I should tell you, when we were in Buffalo, I, I didn't know this, but, you know, you talk with your parents later on in life and you find out all these interesting little tidbits. While we were in Buffalo, before we moved to New Jersey, at the International Fellowship that the Unitarians were holding, I think I mentioned to you that it was diverse, not only in terms of nations participating, but religions. Well, there are a group of Baha'is who came to that. And my mother was just intrigued by these people. There was one lady, a Dr. Pearl Yates, who lived in Buffalo back at that time, very wonderful woman. And my mother was just so impressed with her. She got to hear them a little bit because they had discussions in the Unitarian group. But my dad at that time just was not very inclined to get himself and my mother in a position where they could learn any more about it. And my mother, I guess, didn't feel like she wanted to go around him on it and pursue her own interests with this. So there was the Baha'i faith at the time when I was going through grade school, and I didn't even know it. And so they made the decision to go to Burlington, and my dad started work there for RCA, I believe it was again, as, as an engineer, in kind of an interesting situation living in Burlington, because as I recall, we were in a place that was, uh, it was on the property of a local Catholic rectory. I remember someone who was kind of wearing a priestly garb that would come to the door periodically, and I could hear them a little bit. I don't remember much of what they said mm-hmm. when they talked with him, but he would come and he'd pick up the rent. And I liked that house. It had kind of a sunroof, and you could see out into the garden and the, the street. I think it was Union Street. I'm not sure. It had bricks. Hmm. And we would not lived on a street that was kind of cobblestone before. And so we just loved that neighborhood. And we liked the sound of the cars riding over the bricks. Very lush, green environment there in New Jersey. And they put me in a school called Captain James Lawrence School where I finished elementary school, and then I started at Burlington Junior High School. My mom and my dad, I think at that point, the marriage was kind of on the rocks. You know, children can kind of tell when things aren't going well, and you sort of hear, hear the arguments. And there was a period while he was gone, they sent him to Thule Greenland, I think it was, 
he was working on this kind of a contract that RCA had with the government. It was the Bemuse Project. And I asked him, I said, Daddy, what's Bemuse? And he says, that's the ballistic missile early warning system. <laughs> so it's amazing what we remember. <laughs> setting that up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at that time in, in my personal life, just as a kid, I was kind of developing an interest in, in the sciences. I loved tinkering with things. And I remember my dad getting a transistor set. Back then you had the transistor radios. It was a kit. And he told me he and I were going to build it together. And I said, okay. So we sat down and kind of read the directions. It took us a while. We got it put together. It's kind of a fun project for us. Mm -hmm. And then the radio didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) But it was kind of a fun thing to do with my dad. So while we were in Burlington, there was, I guess, discussion about what the future was for the two of them and for us. They decided, and I don't know whether there was agreement on it or my mother just felt it might be a good idea to try to just move away and make a new start, and my dad said, well, okay. But the decision was made to go to Colorado. So this put us, oh, gosh, early 60s, I want to say maybe 61, something like that. My mother left and went out to Colorado and you know, got odd jobs with whatever she could get, and then got an apartment and rented it and contacted my dad. And it seemed like a long time that when my mom was gone, because, you know, we're young, and yeah. when you're young, the time seems to go a lot slower than it does when you're older. But I'm, I'm guessing it probably was a matter of months that she was out there in Denver and contacted my dad, and my dad drove us. And I don't remember whether we drove into Philadelphia or he had to take us all the way to Chicago. But he put us on this train that was called the the Denver Vista Dome. And it had this glass kind of ceiling on it so that you could look up. It was a scenic ride, basically. By that time, there were four of us. Uh, Lyndon Pam had been born in Buffalo. They were pretty small when we, we moved to Burlington, New Jersey. So... When we were to move to Denver, Bev and I were going into junior high, and then they were in primary school. So he placed all four of us on the train and sent us out to Denver. This is our first opportunity, really, to have that kind of an adventure, four kids riding on a train across the country. With your father, I assume. No, he put, he put us on the train and, and sent us <laughs> oh my out to her. He, he was not on the train, so... Oh. That was it was very interesting. Everybody kind of looked out for us on the train. It was it was pretty entertaining, you yeah. know, looking out the glass dome and and we got into Denver and we were we were okay. And we met my mother at the other end. It's amazing the sacrifices that, that mm-hmm. parents make for the kids. My mom would walk into downtown Denver every day from our little neighborhood out in northwest Denver and do waitressing jobs to feed us and pay the rent. Of course, she'd contact my father and say, you know, you need to send me something, mm-hmm. you know, and when are you coming? And I remember one time when she brought some food home for us, and she left it out so we'd have it that day while she was gone, and we ate all of it. We forgot to savor any. And she got home late that night, and there was nothing for her to eat. So she, she really, really went through quite a lot. Yeah. 
And then finally, it got clear that my dad was not going to come. It just became obvious that it just wasn't a happening deal. So there was discussion of divorce, and my mother realized, okay, here I am in this strange place with four kids. What am I going to do? And, and Denver, at that time, Denver is a, a big city now. It's, I guess I would call it a big little American city. It's not huge like New York or L.A. Mm-hmm. You know, and you could probably lose it in downtown Chicago, but where Denver is, it's the biggest thing around. But back then, Denver had a skyline of probably four tall buildings. <laughs> she landed at Union Station with country and western music, thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? <laughs> How'd she pick Denver you know, in the first place? You know, I never understood how that was decided. Never understood how that was decided. I don't know whether it was just to get far, far away in hopes that things would get better. But, you know, distance doesn't always make things better. And as it turned out, he didn't come. Told her that he wanted a a divorce. And eventually ended up marrying one of the girlfriends that he liked to dance with. (laughs) So that's where the the folk dancing, which was kind of a good thing in some ways, kind of became the downfall. But now the interesting thing about it was, while they were back in New York, and my mother had met these Baha'is, but could never get in the position to, to learn more from them what it was about. That was back in Buffalo. Now here we are out in Colorado, and she didn't know anybody. She didn't know how she was going to pay for things. She decided that she had to go to Opportunity School. There's a place here called Emily Griffith Opportunity School, and you can go there and enroll, and you can learn a trade for fairly cheap. And my mother didn't have a degree, so she thought, I better learn something or we're never going to make any money. And as it turned out, there was a lady there that was doing the exact same thing my mother was doing. And that lady's name was Janet Jones. She was separated from her husband. She had four children. She was trying to figure out, what am I going to do? Mm. And that lady was a Baha'i. And I should tell you, you know, just a little aside here, there's a a place in Denver today which we refer to affectionately as the Clark House. Uh, now, during 1912, when Abdu'l-Bahá made his trip across the United States... Now, why don't you explain to folks who Abdu'l-Bahá is? Abdu'l-Bahá is the son of, of Baha'u'llah, the founder and the prophet of the Baha'i faith. And literally, Abdu'l-Bahá means servant of the glory. There were so many wonderful titles that people gave Abdu'l-Bahá. In fact, Baha'u'llah himself referred to Abdu'l-Bahá as Serolah, the mystery of God, because Abdu'l-Bahá combined in himself the human qualities, but that divine side, perfectly balanced. And so he was like a gift from Baha'u'llah to us as an example, so that we could kind of look at how the Master lived his life, how Abdu'l-Bahá did things, and see how to apply the Baha'i teachings in our own. When Abdu'l-Bahá was released from prison, he undertook to bring his father's faith to this country, and he, he traveled across Europe, across the United States, giving talks. One of the books that I really love, Promulgation of Universal Peace, contains a lot of those talks. And there's a, a talk in there that he gave in Denver in September 
1912. And there's an interesting story of the predecessors of Janet Jones, who my mother met in the uh, Opportunity School in Denver. It would be Janet's, I'm thinking, great-grandmother, because I think her grandmother was Elizabeth Clark, who's called Momsy Clark. And then I think it was Elizabeth Clark's mother who met Abdu'l-Bahá. Apparently, the woman had thought, maybe based on what the Denver Post said or word that she had gotten, that Abdu'l-Bahá and his fellow travelers were arriving maybe the next day or even later that day. And she had done a lot of cleaning around the house, which is now the Clark House, now owned by the the Denver Baha'i Assembly. Then she raced out and did her errands, and as she came back, she hadn't finished. The dishes were all piled in the sink. As she came back down Xavier Street, where the house is, the address is 4140 with Xavier, in case you ever visit Denver, you'll get to see it. In the distance, she could see these men in long robes with fezes and turbans on their heads. And she thought, oh, my God, (laughs) he's here. (laughs) Can you imagine arriving, and there is your special guest, and you're not ready. And she welcomed him in and had everybody sit down, and he seated himself in this rocking chair, which you can still see if you visit the Clark House today. He said, excuse me, Mrs. Clark, but may I have a glass of water? And she said, oh, of course. Master, I'll be happy to get you a glass of water. He said, no, 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 that's all right. And this is in perfect English. Really? Perfect English, she says this to her. Yeah. I can get it myself. And she said, oh, let me get it for you. I'll just run in the kitchen and get it. He said, no, 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 that, that's okay. I'll get it myself. And then he went into the kitchen and pumped himself a glass of water with the pump, which I think we still have in the Denver community. Hmm. And then he came back out and sat down in the rocker and rocked back and forth and just smiled at her. So this was the the great-grandmother of Janet Jones. Now, Janet was going to school because she needed to learn a trade, and and my mother really hit it off with her. The two of them kind of became fast friends. And so Janet was coming over to our place a lot. I was, I want to say I was 13 probably at that time, 13 going on 14, they would sit out in the kitchen, and they were smoking and drinking <laughs> coffee, you know, and just chatting. You know, back then, people just, they'd sit and smoke right in the house. Right. You, know, you don't have that so much now, and yeah. they don't actually drink the coffee that much either. Now it's a double <laughs> shot of espresso with this or that in it, you know, latte. or a chai or a latte. But back then, what you did was you smoked, you drank coffee, and you talked. And so they, would do, they were always doing that in the mm-hmm. kitchen. And that gave me the opportunity to kind of listen a little bit. Mm. And uh, gradually, Janet started telling my mother about the Baha'i faith. And my mother was astounded because now here was this thing, which my mother assumed to be the same thing that she'd run into back east, but couldn't get any information about it. Mm. And so now in her kitchen is this person (laughs) Mm. with this amazing history herself. Yeah. And so they would talk, and my mother was just kind of curious about it. But what was interesting to me was a, a lot of the names that were flying around. I, I couldn't pronounce those names. I didn't know what they were. And it concerned me a little bit because although my mother watched us as kids, 
we kind of felt we needed to watch after her a little bit. Uh-huh. Because coming out to Denver was maybe not the greatest experience for her. It was a little frightening. Mm. And we knew the strain that she was under to try to raise us. And Linda and Pam were much younger. And, you know, for them, they didn't really pick up on that yet. Mm-hmm. So now I'm hearing this woman, and they're talking about these strange things in my kitchen. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I wonder what my mom's getting involved in. <laughs> <laughs> so when my mother said to me uh, that she was going to go to something with Janet, and she said, do you want to go? And I said, yeah, I'll go with you. What I had in mind was that I would just kind of be sure this wasn't going to be too weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we went. And learned all sorts of things from some very fascinating, fascinating people. When I had been younger, you know, I think I mentioned to you that my dad was really not so much into religion. He was more more of the humanist side. Mm-hmm. You know, he liked the Unitarian group. He was comfortable with that. And that my mother had more of a, of a, a personal faith. Mm-hmm. Well, we kids were raised with moral teachings and there was a certain presence of Christianity in the family because my mother was there, and we also associated with people who had it. So I, I had that exposure, and I always kind of wondered about this difference, so to speak, between religions. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd see all these people coming to the, the International Fellowship. Before you go on, Carol, mm-hmm. what were you doing from a religious point of view as a family when you arrived in Denver before she ran into Janet at this school? Oh, now that was kind of an interesting period for us because it was a testing period because we had very little and it made us draw close together. And I think my mother, if she had had her druthers, she would probably have gone and found a group. Maybe she would even have looked up the Unitarians. But I think at that time, because of the struggle for existence, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, she didn't really take on a lot of extra activity. So in our home, we would kind of gather together, and we would, my mother would pray with us. We celebrated Christmas. And there was another influence there, too, that I, I probably ought to mention. We had a, a wonderful neighbor who kind of knew our situation with my mother now being kind of a single parent. And this lady was a very, very strong Christian. And I think she was kind of concerned. I think she knew that we had some exposure. But she kind of felt that we, as kids, we had probably not yet taken, quote-unquote, Christ into our hearts. And so she would come back and forth to our house, and sometimes she'd bring things that we needed, you know, she'd help my mother out, maybe with eggs or milk or something, and just visit and talk. And my mother, my mother loved her, and we we did too. She was just good people. Mm. And then I think I remember at one time we were probably at this lady's home, and we were gathered around the table. There were a few of us sitting there, and she had just had a class. And the, the other kids had cleared out. They'd gone home. The class was over, and we were kind of gathered there. And And she said, you know, I, I know you're good kids, but I'm wondering if you've really taken Christ into your hearts. And if you haven't, I'd, li- I'd like to give you the opportunity to do that now. You know, so this is this is very interesting. So from yeah. from 
Unitarianism <laughs> in New York, yeah. which is, you know, it, it has a Christian background, but it embraces a lot of different things today. And now here we are in Denver, and we're embracing Christianity, and in a matter of months, we're embracing the Baha'i faith. Mm. So it, it kind of had a, a, a quick progression, but it was good. Mm-hmm. It was very good, because it, it helped me to actually get into my heart a little bit. I, I was tenderized, as was my older sister, who my older sister didn't become a Baha'i, but we were tenderized by that experience of the separation, and and my dad sending us out and then not coming, and mm-hmm. you know all those things that were happening, and we got very close as kids, and very close with my mother. And so it was a time for me to really start thinking about thoughts that I had had earlier as a child, but really hadn't been able to sort out for myself. And my father really wasn't in a position to help me sort those things out, because he just wasn't in that space. And my mother, you know, was just so bogged down with the struggle for existence that what she could do was be loving and nurturing and pray with us, but we didn't really have the time to have the discussions that probably would have been good for me mm-hmm. in thinking about my beliefs and, and how I was feeling about religion and and, and all these teachers. And, and are they all true, or is just one of them true? What does it all mean? You're referring to teachers being the prophets of all the religions. Right, right. And so... Yeah. When this dear lady offered us the opportunity to take Christ into our hearts, why well, I, I did because it was a good moment for me to do it, and I think the, the barriers had come down, and yeah. my heart was open. Was this true for your sister as well? Uh, it was not so true for her. I think she was sympathetic. I think she could relate to what this woman was doing. Beverly was older for, than me, and so she appreciated the services that this woman was really offering to us as a family, but it wasn't for Beverly. It just wasn't for her, and the other two were just kind of young. So that was my moment with my trying to get in touch with the divine revelator, you know, the manifestation of God. And as a young kid, I took the Bible and I started reading. You know, I'd, I'd heard quotes from it when I lived on the East Coast, but I'd never read it. So I started reading it. It was kind of heavy reading. I mean, there was some of it that really uh, moved me and touched me, you know, listening to the words of Jesus. A lot of the other things in it, the stories related to who begat who, you know, some of that got a little lengthy for me. (laughs) But I read, Mm -hmm. and I was pretty young at that time. So there I was going to junior high school, and then into our lives comes Janet now. And my mother's getting involved in this thing. And I'm just wondering kind of what it is. And so now we, we're, we're going to some of these gatherings, and I'm hearing the most amazing things, which were really answers for me. Because when we met all these wonderful people in this international fellowship, it was good. But, you know, why were people in the world fighting? And why were they fighting about religion, of all things? So there's a quote of Baha'u'llah where he says something to the effect that Religious fanaticism and hatred are a world-devouring fire. Violence none can quench, and just the hand of divine power can deliver mankind from this desolating affliction. 
And so here, here now, presented to me is, is the possibility that the one that was talked about in the Bible, and in fact the one that was talked about in all those other religions that I kind of rub shoulders with back east, this one has now come. And I thought, wow, you know, can that possibly be? And if it's true, then he could unite them all, because he would be the promised one for all of them. That was mind-blowing to me. So I was 13. Then the teachings of Baha'u'llah were just exactly what we needed. This whole notion of the, the oneness and the wholeness of humanity, because we had been on the receiving end of people's prejudices, and now here is a group that is saying, we're all one. And it says so right here. <laughs> yeah. This manifestation of God says we're one. So it certainly had a lot of appeal. And this lady, uh, Janet Jones and her friends, continued teaching us for about a year when finally somebody got the idea, let's give Diane, that's my mother, mm-hmm. let's give her some of the writings. And I, I don't know why they didn't think to do that at the beginning. But when my mother brought the writings home, and I think they gave her a prayer book, and I don't know what else. And she opened that and started to read from it. She knew that this was the Word of God. I could see that she was moved by what she was reading. So when you say the writings, you're referring to the mm-hmm. writings from the prophet founder, Baha'u'llah? Yes, Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha. But she was reading from Baha'u'llah, and she was saying some of the prayers. And she said, you know, this, this is the voice of God. It's the same voice as Christ's voice. That just blew me away. So I began reading, too. And then finally I thought, I'm going to have to have my moment again. I see my mother really believes this. And so there's something really good about it, because my mother's really good. I just prayed, and I asked God, I said, is this you? And the answer came back, yes. And I don't know whether it was a verbal answer inside of me or a feeling, maybe a combination of the two. Mm. I felt Baha'u'llah was who he said he was. We were ready to roll. (laughs) My mother uh, enrolled in the faith in 1963, and then I found out that you had to wait until you were 15. (laughs) Now, why is that? I was 14 at the time, and back then, uh, what they did when you were enrolled in the Baha'i faith, you declared your faith formally at the age of 15, which Baha'u'llah says is the age of religious maturity. That's the age at which the young person can follow the laws of Baha'u'llah, fasting, and so on. Mm-hmm. The prayers, those, those pertain to a person at 15. And younger than that, no, they would be going through training. You know, they wouldn't fast. They wouldn't do those things. So, And at that time, the local spiritual assembly, which is the local governing body of the Baha'i community, it's nine adults were elected by the community. At that time, what they did was they had you come in when you were ready to uh, make your formal declaration of faith, and you met with the, the assembly. So... I learned I would have to wait till I was 15. So in 1964, when I turned 15, I had my meeting 
with the Denver Assembly, and that was quite the warm, loving experience. It wasn't as intimidating as I thought. You know, I thought, oh, gosh, I'm going to go in front of this assembly, and what are they going to ask me, and, you know, are they going to grill me on everything and expect me to know it? But but they didn't. They just wanted to assure themselves and to assure me that I understood the magnitude of the path that I was about to walk. Mm. Each one of them gave me a book. Each one gave me something from the writings or a book about the faith, and then they, and they signed it. So I made out like a bandit. <laughs> I came out of there a member of the community and with my library started. <laughs> Moving for me is a problem because I've got lots of bookcases, but I got my stack going at that meeting. So did you see any changes in your mom as she was drawing closer to the Baha'i faith? Yes, I did. I always thought my mother was courageous for what she had done. But I, I really saw her just kind of step up to the plate from then on. There was a, a certain sense of peace that she had because what we had gone through was not real pleasant. It, there's a lot of emotional strain. You're going through a divorce and then you're adding on top of it moving to a strange city and, and raising kids on your own. But her embracing of the Baha'i faith brought her a, a tremendous peace and a tremendous joy that continued even through the struggles that we continued to have for a while. And she took on a, a Wednesday night fireside, and fireside, in case people don't know it, it's a gathering where you bring people in and, and show them hospitality and warmth and, and share something with them about the Baha'i faith. And my mother opened her home. We were living in the front unit of the duplex then in northwest Denver. Mm -hmm. Still didn't have a lot of money. She welcomed people into her home and made wonderful refreshments and served great coffee. And people loved it. You know, every, every Wednesday the place would fill up. And I remember we had a gentleman named Seymour Weinberg who became quite an author and lecturer who used to come give talks at my mother's fireside. And we, we had a, a canary. And whenever we get the prayer started, the canary would start singing right on cue. <laughs> For her, it was just that moment of confirmation of her old faith and stepping into something new. I think her courage even magnified, looking at it, how she got four girls through college. It's interesting, she met her, her second husband through the fireside. And I think it was Leah Dagan that brought my stepdad, Richard Levitz, as a guest to the fireside. And he liked my mother's coffee, and he liked my mother. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And they ended up getting married just before I got out of high school. Yeah. And that was a new thing for our family as well, because now we had a stepfather. And that's always a little bit different for kids. Sure. You know, when you have a new, new person in the household, that worked out well. Yeah. You know, one of, the, one of the things my mother did while we lived in that Denver home, which set a direction for actually all of us, but especially me, my mother, one year, because she loved to celebrate Christmas, it was the thing that she kind of continued. 
after we embraced the faith. And this was, I want to say, was I in high school? I believe so. She came home. I maybe was towards the end of high school. She came home with this department store guitar. Bought it as a gift. Didn't have a lot of money. Bought this guitar. And I don't know what she had to pay for it at the time. It was, you know, not the deluxe model, but just something you get in the store. Maybe $20, maybe $40. And that guitar, we just played that thing and played that thing until we all learned it. Except for my sister Bev. Bev did other things. She went on to other instruments, but the three younger ones, we all played that guitar. If one of us would put it down, another person would pick it up, and they'd play it. The Denver community, we terrorized them with our music (laughs) for about the first year, and then gradually... We got to the point where we were singing in three-part harmonies oh, wow. and and playing on the guitar and, and music. Bahá'u'lláh talks about that being a ladder for the soul to ascend. It made such a difference in community gatherings to have that music. So it wasn't there before? It wasn't there before. We had some young people, but we had a lot of older people. And when we learned to play the guitar and we started singing the songs... People began to sing, and it just had such an influence. And it's one of those things where you can just do a lot more mm-hmm. when you've got music. And for us, and me personally, it became, it's a way to memorize. If you take a passage, there's a, one of my favorite passages, and actually one of my favorite songs, where Abdu'l-Bahá talks about what's the real unity. It's a, it's a passage that's in a compilation we have called Baha'i World Faith. It's an older compilation. And Abdu'l-Bahá talks about the various unities, but he says, but the unity that's productive of unlimited results is first a unity of mankind. And this goes on for this huge, huge paragraph. And if you were to look at that and try to memorize it, that'd be very daunting. But if you can sing, the unity which is productive of unlimited results, is first the unity of mankind. Now that quote's in there, mm. you know, and, and you've got it. And so the music just really had a great effect on the community life. And they would hold public meetings, and then my sisters and I would be the, kind of the entertainment. <laughs> and they, they'd introduce us, so the people would be expecting this group to come out. Yeah. And we had, there were some Baha'is in the community at that time where, were from New York, and so they all knew about Brooks Brothers' clothing. Okay, so they would say, okay, so for the music tonight, we've got the Brooks Brothers. <laughs> and then us three girls would walk out with our guitars, and everybody would start laughing. <laughs> so that was kind yeah. of fun. <laughs> and then funny. when we went to college, the music just became even more influential, and I, I by then, we were all pretty heavily into it. We were all learning at our own pace, and Linda and Pam were taking music theory in school, and which I didn't do. I went into the sciences, but mm-hmm. I continued to learn with my instrument and to sing, and we very quickly figured out that if you sat down on a lawn at the college, all you had, all you had to do to gather people was pull a guitar out, and people just collected. You know, it was the 60s, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, and the, and the 70s. It became quite a way to share the teachings with people in a, in a very heartfelt way. 
we look back on those days with a lot of fondness. People say that if you remember the 60s, you didn't participate fully. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, we didn't participate fully because we, we weren't into the, the drug part of it, you know. But we, we met a lot of people through the music, and people were so open and just looking for something new. And then you'd present the idea of, you know, there, there's a dying order that we're seeing collapsing around us, and there's a new one emerging at the same time. Baha'u'llah says the, the world's equilibrium has been upset by the vibrating influence of this, this unique, this new world order. And people were just really open to hearing about that. Little did they know how much our world would start shaking. I think now we look at it and we, we see more evidences of the things that we studied at a younger age in the Baha'i teachings. It's become so much more obvious. But back then, people knew they wanted something different. They knew they didn't want the order that they had. And when you would sing songs from the writings and about the teachings, it had quite an effect. The music each one of us kids has carried with us kind of throughout our lives. It's been a kind of a big thing for us. So is your mother still alive? My mother is still alive, and I am now at that interesting phase of my life where I'm kind of helping my younger sister take care of her. When we're little, they wipe our noses, they tie our shoes, they watch out for us, then they reach a point where we're tying their shoes and giving them their shower and making sure they've had their medication and some clean clothes to put on and then taking them out so they can get a little fresh air and, and be among people. And So we're kind of engaged in doing that, and it's quite a time. The Bob encouraged us all to, when we say our prayers, to pray for our parents, for blessings for them and, and forgiveness. And my mother is at that age where I can just look back at a life of tremendous service and sacrifice that she rendered to her family, in addition to, to giving us faith. Which is probably the greatest gift of all. We don't know how much longer we'll have her with us, but I try to devote any weekends when I'm not traveling to being with her. During the week, it gets life gets kind of crazy. There's work, yeah. and there's activities, of course, in the Baha'i community, and all those personal things that you have to get done. So I try to give my sister a little added support on the weekends and do those things that she's not able to do for my mother and you know help my mother feel that she's surrounded by some family during her late years of her life. So we're... We're at that point now where, you know, we're, we're really beginning to think about some of those marvelous passages of the writings about the realms beyond. But we certainly believe that there's a, a better world that one goes to after they pass away. Absolutely. And yeah. that, that was another teaching that I just found so marvelous in this faith because people always had talked about things like heaven and hell, but it just made so much sense to me the analogies that Baha'u'llah made about the soul being in the world of the, the matrix, like being in the womb. And when the baby's in the womb, the, the baby's not aware of this outer world, although this world is right here. And eventually the baby dies to that womb and is born into the world. And we go on a spiritual journey in this life, you know, building the spiritual qualities and powers that we'll need when we die to this world and, and move into the next one. And 
so it's a marvelous thought you know when we think of how wide and bright and expansive that world must be when we consider that this world is bright compared to that dark womb you said earlier that before you ran into the baha'i faith you had the question about why are all these different people fighting and then you felt that the baha'i faith answered that question for you and i was kind of curious if you could share with us what that answer was to that question yes to me what i saw as a child i saw so many groups all in their separate houses thinking of themselves as separate from each other and in many ways feeling that their teacher their prophet their divine messenger was unique and not being connected. Mm-hmm. And when I m- would meet these people from these different backgrounds, I found them all wonderful mm-hmm. and found the things that they shared with me to be really quite marvelous. And I, I couldn't see why is there a conflict. And so when we came to this message of Baha'u'llah, and Baha'u'llah taught that the one God sent all of the previous messengers, all of them, came from that same source and were the teachers of mankind for the various ages in which humanity had lived, and that he now was coming to bring God's teachings for this day and age and to fulfill the promise of all those gone before him, it became clear to me where Baha'u'llah was taking us. What he was saying is that it isn't multiple religions all in separate little houses with their own separate little beliefs. It's one faith. It's the religion of God. It's a continuing story. And if the world can come to understand that, you know, that's when we're going to really start beating the sword into plowshares. And the dissension that exists because of difference of religion, that will melt away. It's a day that I think we all long for, and it's a day that I think back then I didn't see the possibility of, but I do now, and it's a great hope that I have, and it's the driving force in my life. Well, Carol, thank you so much for sharing your story. Well, thank you so much for visiting with me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carol Brooks. She became a Baha'i along with her mother when she was in middle school in the Denver area. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Can you hear the sound of hearts beating?
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.